listening to WMNF Tampa, your community conscious radio station. Stay tuned for Background Briefing with Ian Masters. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's announcement today that he has tasked the intelligence community to come up with a report in 90 days to determine whether the COVID pandemic emerged, quote, from human contact with an infected animal or from a laboratory accident. Joining us to discuss the growing interest in the possibility of a lab accident is Dr. Stanley Perlman, a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. We'll look into how a recent U.S. intelligence report that found several researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology fell ill in November of 2019 with COVID-19-like symptoms before the first case in China was announced on December the 30th has raised suspicions with Biden remarking today without mentioning Trump by name that, quote, the failure to get our inspectors on the ground in those early months will always hamper any investigation into the origin of COVID-19. The president went on to say that, quote, the United States will also keep working with like-minded partners around the world to press China to participate in a full, transparent, evidence-based international investigation and to provide access to all relevant data and evidence. Then, with Putin inviting the dictator of Belarus to his summer residence in Sochi next week, we'll investigate further Russia's role in the hijacking of a civilian airliner in order to arrest one journalist. Joining us is Gulnoza Saeed, the Committee to Protect Journalists Europe and Central Asia Program Coordinator, who is a journalist with over 15 years' experience in New York, Prague, Bratislava and Tashkent, and we'll discuss her article at CNN, The Shocking Detention of a Journalist in Flight, and the fate of the many other journalists jailed and tortured by the Lukashenko regime. Then finally, we'll speak with Dr. Scott Ellsworth, a professor of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan, who joins us on his way to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where his team of researchers will exhume a mass grave on June the 1st, the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. He joins us to discuss his latest book, The Groundbreaking, The Tulsa Race Massacre and an American City's Search for Justice, and how he has fought for decades to get the story out about the 1921 massacre of hundreds of African Americans and the destruction of their prosperous community, and to bring justice to the three living survivors, Viola Fletcher, 107, and her 100-year-old brother, and Lessie Benningfield Randall, 106. And joining us now are Dr. Stanley Perlman, a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Stanley Perlman. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And President Biden announced today that he's tasked the intelligence community to come up with a report in 90 days to specifically address whether the coronavirus pandemic emerged from, quote, from human contact with an infected animal or from a laboratory accident. And it seems in a way that 
This perhaps has been spurred by recent reports from a recent U.S. intelligence report that found that several researchers in China's Wuhan Institute for Virology fell ill in November 2019, and apparently they had to be hospitalized, and their symptoms were very similar to COVID-19. So what's your sense now of this new direction? So I think even before the intelligence briefing was uh, made public, I think there was trends towards thinking harder about exactly where the virus came from. So we know that in the beginning of the pandemic, there were claims that the virus was artificially made in the laboratory. We knew that this was impossible because we didn't know enough about coronaviruses to be able to do that. Then there was questions about whether a, a virus could have been brought into a laboratory and then deliberately manipulated in many ways uh, to make it more virulent for people and more transmissible for people. This was also something that we didn't think was possible to do and still I don't think was possible to do. But then there's the next level. Where could the virus come from then? So one possibility was it came from animals, from either somebody who hunted animals or brought animals into food markets and the animals were contaminated with the virus or the virus uh, was brought in by the person carrying those animals or the virus circulated in areas near to uh, different parts of China, uh, either in southwest China or in southeast uh, Asia, and that it became used to humans and then adapted to humans and then spread to humans in Wuhan. So those all those approaches, all those ideas imply that the virus occurred naturally. And that is some version of that is still one that I like the best, but I have to say that over the last 18 months, we've really not found very much in the way to support this idea. The nearest we've found so far is a bat in Yunnan from about 2016, I believe, and a virus in pangolins from uh, two years ago. So there's no evidence, there's no good evidence now for the virus having been in these intermediate animals or into human populations before its appearance in Wuhan in 2019. And at the same time, it became clear that we, we knew from past experience that viruses occasionally do leak out of laboratories, not in the U.S. so far, but in other parts of the world. So the, uh, the idea that this was a lab leak now was coalescing with the idea that maybe this is from an animal. So if that virus in an animal happened to be in the a laboratory, one of the laboratories in Wuhan, then one could imagine that under some circumstance it leaked from that laboratory. So it's the same virus that could have come from a hunter or from an animal or from someone else, but it could have also come from the laboratory. Would it have been deliberately manipulated in the laboratory? I don't think that's possible to do that in a very uh, directed manner. If you passaged it through tissue culture cells to make it more adaptable to humans, usually you get a virus that actually doesn't grow so well in people. It grows well in tissue culture cells, but not in people. So that didn't seem to me to be too likely as well. So, but it still comes back. Sorry, Glenn. Well, I was going to say that you mentioned the case down in on the border with Vietnam in Yunnan province of the horseshoe bat. A bunch of miners would were digging bat guano. They came down with a with something that's similar to COVID. There were a lot of researchers that visited them. Several of them were died, but some also were in hospital for about six months, recovering, and their tissue samples were were definitely apparently taken to the Wuhan lab. Is there anything to that theory? Well, again, it's the the issue is that we we still have it, we yes. So the virus there's 
there's no question that the Wuhan lab collected bat samples. So they could very well have had samples there. The, all the sequences we know about, though, were not the same as SARS-CoV-2. The one that is most commonly associated with those illnesses was, in fact, a thousand nucleotides different from the virus, which, in terms of the virus, is a huge number of changes to have occurred. So, yes, that's, that, if, if that were the case, then one might want to f- expect to find other viruses in the area of the cave or might have been able to find evidence in the laboratories in Wuhan. So uh, that is a possibility, but that virus itself is not the precursor to SARS-CoV-2 because it's too distant. It has to, there has to be something else that's nearer for us to have the pandemic that we now have. So go. This is what we thought a year ago, a year and a half ago, that there would be other viruses, other steps in that process that would, in that pathway, that would lead us to the actual origin of the virus. Well, the U.S. did through the National Institute of Health did provide funding to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to study bats, and uh, this was done through the Eco Health Alliance. And of course, Dr. Fauci has said, you know. <laughs> of course we studied bats in in Wuhan in China. You don't do it in Fairfax County. So that makes a lot of sense. But there's a lengthy article by the New York Times science writer Nicholas Wade published in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that suggests that there was some reckless work going on there in terms of investigating coronaviruses and trying to even get ahead of the next generation of CoV-2s with protein spikes, etc. I've tried to interview this guy, Nicholas Wade, but uh, he hadn't been available, so I'm, I don't know what to make of it. What do you make of it? I think that what he's referring to, there's some, I think that there's some truth in what he's talking about. There's questions about how these viruses were handled. When we work with any of these viruses, in my lab does a lot of work with both the viruses and manipulating them to understand them. We do it all in our very high security uh, laboratories. There's story, There's some question about if one gets a bat sample and do you take it to the high facility laboratory or, or just one work with it in the usual laboratory or a special version of the usual laboratory. It seems like some of the work in Wuhan was done in the not in the highest, uh, not in the BSL three, the highest level, or BSL four is the highest level, but BSL three is the one we use. It was done more at the BSL two, which has. Uh, ex- extended uh, safety precautions compared to an open lab, but still is not as safe for people. So that's one issue, and from what I he- understand, that's probably true that some some of those samples were analyzed at that level. If people are careful, though, these things never spread, because the fact is we've done it for years, even the BSL-3 and BSL-2, and we've never had any hint of an infection, even when we think we've made a mistake. And we don't, we don't make mistakes in BSL-3, but because that's so carefully monitored, or if we make mistakes, we know exactly what to do. And the BSL-2, even, we haven't really seen these kinds of spills or anything else, but it's not impossible. So that's where that argument is coming from. Um, in terms of, and there's other things that can might be done that um, uh, were were a concern. There was some, yes, these, these making these recombinant viruses. So the, the thing I can tell you about the recombinant viruses is that in the U.S., each one of these is approved by a, a committee at the NIH. And one has to, the committee, I'm not on the committee, but the committee, as I understand it, weighs the benefit versus the harm. And they've approved most of these constructs. 
if this was an NIH grant, I, I'm pretty sure that these constructs have to be approved by the NIH, but I don't know for certain. So those are the two things I think that Nicholas Wade was referring to. So they, they, well, both of them, one could say have, they, they're, they're, they have some truth to them, but they also make things, uh, they may exaggerate what's really going on. But that's why the, uh, the, the idea of having a commission or someone figure this out is important because given that we haven't really found a natural source other than these, this uh, virus in Wuhan, in the uh, Yunnan, which is pretty distant from SARS-CoV-2, we're still looking. So that's where, that's, that's where the uncertainty comes. And to the other issue is in the, that's coming up now is these people in, in, uh, who worked in the lab who became ill uh, in, in November 2019, who worked in one of the Wuhan labs, became ill. So the, the question is, could those, could those people have been infected with SARS-CoV-2? And therefore, uh, pointing to the lab as being a source. So one would love to know the answer to that. I mean, that's clearly an important question. At this point in 2021, it's really tough to know unless somebody happened to save blood from those samples and they could be analyzed for presence of antibodies to the virus. Um, or if those individual, at this point, you can't even take blood from those people because there's so much SARS-CoV-2 around that they could have well been infected after November 2019, and we wouldn't be able to tell that apart from an infection in 2019. So th this makes it all just really difficult to know where, what the truth is and how we're going to find out. But I think, we, I think the, all the communities are coalescing around the idea that this is natural and whether it was in the laboratory or released in the market by a non-laboratory source, uh, to my mind, they, they come converging on the same kind of idea uh, that something had to be released into the market, which, of course, is what people have believed all along. Uh, whether it was released from a lab or from a hunter or from, from an animal in the market, I, I think we don't know, and it would be great to know. It would be great to know the animal source anyway, because it, whether it was released from a market or from a laboratory, we want to know more about where the virus started. Was it bats? Was there intermediate animals? So if we can figure that out, that'll help a lot. If it came directly from bats, that'll point us to one way of thinking about things. If it came from an intermediate animal, we'll, thinking, uh, we'll think about it a little differently. Well, but everything you're telling us, Dr. Stanley Perlman, indicates the need for a real investigation into the origins of COVID-19 and uh, again this would all require Chinese cooperation and in the uh, announcement today President Biden said that the US intelligence community well he said that he when he first became president in March he asked his national security advisor to look into the origins of COVID and uh, he received an earlier report earlier this month but then he said as of today the u.s intelligence community has coalesced around two likely scenarios uh, which i mentioned in the beginning and while two elements in the intelligence community leans towards the former scenario uh, meaning a zoonotic leap and one leans towards the latter meaning a lab leak each with low to moderate confidence the majority of elements do not believe there is sufficient information to assess one to be more likely than the other and then it concludes by saying that the United States, you know, would like to work with China and the United States is also working with like-minded partners around the world to press China to participate in a full, transparent, evidence-based international investigation and to provide access to all relevant data and evidence. So since we don't really know 
what the origins are, as you've made it clear, Dr. Perlman, is there any way to convince the Chinese that this is really important? I mean, it clearly is, isn't it? Yeah, it's clearly important, and I think the Chinese know it's clearly important. And um, what I hope is that when some of the uh, political, uh, political, what's the noise, goes away and we all, as scientists, when we all talk about this, we all have the same ideas about how we have to find the source and what are the possibilities. Some lean a little more towards one side more, and others lean more towards the other side. I think the people who are talking about this being manufactured are really in the fringe now. So the, the everybody, I think most people want to know, most people know that we, that we have to know more about what went on in Wuhan because that's where it started. And also, if, if we do find a natural source elsewhere, that'll change the thinking about how it got to Wuhan. There's, there's, there's lots to learn. It, and to my mind, here we are 18 months after the beginning, and it's even really tougher to sort this out because it's just getting further and further from the T equals zero point. But previous pandemics or infections you've always found the natural source, right? I mean, that's what's so puzzling about this, that they still haven't been able to find the natural source. Yeah, so even what's curious about it, so SARS was the best example. So SARS clearly was a bat virus. It went through um, uh, intermediate animals in markets in Guangzhou, China, and then it infected people, and then it spread around the world. But even for that, while we know it's a bat virus, the bat, the actual bat virus has not been isolated. It's been very, very close but no one's ever found the exact virus that we think started it. So it, it, there's, there's usually better hints that you're right, because certainly that market, the market there in Guangzhou, we found the virus in these bats and then in these intermediate animals. So we know it, it went through that pathway. Uh, but uh, And this one has just been mysterious, because we have found so little other than the two examples that I've given. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, what is the importance of getting to the origin of this pandemic why is it scientifically important well it's scientifically important because in order to prevent or, or prevent or ameliorate for future outbreaks we have to know where they started so if this is solely a bat virus that uh, spread across species to infect humans directly that tells us that what kind of links we have to break if this turns out to be something that uh, was from a bat for sure it started in a bat went from a bat to an intermediate animals then dealing with uh, live people who catch live animals, whether for food or other reasons, has to become more strict in countries where it's going on. If it went via a small community of humans who happened to be around bats and the virus amplified, excuse me, it goes back to the bat idea, and we have to uh, we have to be careful about interactions between bats and people. So that that's it's that's why it's important. And the other thing is we know where to look for future uh, bats that cause, could have contain a virus that could cause a future epidemic. So as we know more about uh, the origins of this particular one, some of these things you could say, well, you could guess and do that anyway, but not guessing and knowing is always a better way to do things. But would it also mean that ought to, there ought to be an international consortium to set standards in these BSL-4 labs like the Wuhan Institute for Virology to make sure that things are being done professionally? Yeah, so my, my feeling is that this was not a leak from a BSL-4 laboratory. They're really highly uh, managed. They're highly uh, controlled. 
the ones that I've been in have been really, really well managed. So I don't think this is a leak from a BSL-4 lab, because that would imply that we had a pathogen that we knew was going to communicate among people and was particularly dangerous. Even the, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 that we use in my lab, we do at the BSL-3, not at the BSL-4. So there was a BSL-4 lab in Wuhan, but I doubt that that was the source. Even I doubt there was a BSL-3 uh, source. So it's, I think one of the if there's going to be a lab leak involved, I, I would suspect it would be more something done with uh, at the BSL two level, potentially the BSL three. But I tend to doubt it because the people working with these things in China know uh, how to work with them at BSL three levels. So it's uh, I wouldn't wor I'd worry less about setting up standards for BSL four than uh, dealing with general lab safety issues and how does one handle bat samples if that turns out to be the source for everything. Well, Dr. Stanley Perlman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Stanley Perlman, who's a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. Like a virus. As part of WMNF's mission calendar, we're paying special attention to mental health awareness in May. We, we know many of our listeners or their loved ones are struggling. If you need help, you can reach out to the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. The number is 211. That is 211. WMNF is here for you, too. And thanks for listening. And stay tuned for Midpoint Thursday with Janet Sherberger and Shelley Reback following NPR News here on your community conscious radio station, WMNF Tampa. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gulnoza Saeed, who's the Committee to Protect Journalists Europe and Central Asia Program Coordinator, a journalist with over 15 years of experience in New York, Prague, Bratislava and Tashkent. She has covered issues including politics, media, religion and human rights with a focus on Central Asia, Russia and Turkey. And she has an article at CNN, The Shocking Detention of a Journalist in Florida. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gulnoza Saeed. Hello, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And it does seem extraordinary the length to which the dictator in Belarus, Lukashenko, along with, I think, it's pretty clear that there was help from the Russians as well, would literally hijack a plane flying between two EU states just at the last minute as it's about to enter Lithuanian airspace, getting turned away by a fighter that intercepted it, and then landing with the rubric, by the way, that there was a bomb on board planted by Hamas, which Hamas, of course, denied, and then hauling this young reporter off the plane along with his girlfriend. All that to get one dissident. So what does it say to you, Gulnozer? It seems to indicate that you have a kind of weak strongman there. You have a dictator, but at the same time, the idea that one journalist is such a threat to that regime that they would go to such lengths. 
Yes, and uh, unfortunately, Lukashenko is not the only one. We've seen uh, quite a few authoritarian leaders who uh, went an extra mile to go after their critics. Look at uh, the Russian president who allegedly ordered poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the chief opposition leader. Or look at the Turkish president, Erdogan, uh, who jailed dozens of journalists who've been critical of him and his rule. Or look at Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who was dismembered at the Saudi consulate in Turkey, uh, also allegedly by the direct instructions from the Saudi leader. So uh, Lukashenko is another dictator who used his power to go after his critic, a journalist. But of course, what happened on Sunday uh, is a new uh, level uh, to which Lukashenko raised his game against uh, independent media and independent reporting. And I think we just saw a new face of Lukashenko in a way. I've been monitoring Belarus for many years, Yen, and uh, Lukashenko is not someone who ever even pretended to be democratic. Uh, and he used tactics of silencing his opponents and critics in the past, jailing them, sometimes killing them. But yes, uh, what happened on Sunday is, I think, the new uh, red line that Lukashenko crossed. And he showed to the entire world how far he can go in order to prosecute and maybe even kill his critics. Well, of course, the dictators that you mentioned, Putin and the wannabe dictator in Turkey, Erdogan, and, and you have put Xi Jinping in that list as well, they see the media as their own mouthpiece for state propaganda. So they don't even have a concept of what we would understand the purpose of the media is, right? It's a different kind of uh, outlet, yes. They see it as a, the main propaganda tool, as the main platform to strengthen their power and authority and the main platform to control the population. That's why they don't tolerate any dissent. And if you look at Russia or Belarus, uh, main uh, media outlets have been controlled by the state and often operate with direct instructions from the authorities on what to cover and how to cover. Uh, and mostly it is the TV that the governments in these countries try to control in the first place because a lot of people use TV as their main source. And that's exactly why Raman Pratasevich's Telegram channels have become so popular in Belarus because since the protests started against uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the president who announced his victory in the presidential elections last August, Telegram provided alternative information, the information that was alternative to everything that the state propaganda outlets have been trying to feed the Belarusian population. Telegram uh, is a platform, including the two uh, channels that Raman Pratasevich ran, Nechta and 
Belarus головного мозга, which is translated as Belarus of the brain, uh, were disseminating information. Very often it was user-generated content about protests. So Belarusians were able to get information about protests in any part of Belarus practically on the spot as they were happening. And the, it was not just text, but also videos. So they could see how many people were taking to streets to protest against uh, Lukashenko. And that's exactly why Lukashenko was and has been so scared of Telegram channels, Nechta and others. And again, I'm speaking with Gulnoza Sayed, who's a, the Committee to Protect Journalists Europe and Central Asia Program Coordinator, a journalist with over 15 years of experience in New York, Prague, Bratislava and Tashkent. She has covered issues including politics, media, religion and human rights with a focus on Central Asia, Russia and Turkey. And she has an article at CNN, The Shocking Detention of a Journalist in Flight. So we've all seen the extraordinary pictures of hundreds of thousands of Belarusians spontaneously demonstrating against the outrageous claim that Lukashenko had won the election that he had clearly lost by, I think it was over a 70% margin. He just awarded himself arbitrarily that kind of victory. But even some of, the, my understanding is even some of the anchors working for state TV, which means that they're part of the propaganda machine they all quit in protests and they've been replaced by russians that putin has sent over so most analysts now are looking at what's happening in belarus and in the reaction from the eu countries to deny overflights etc they're all indicating that putin is the winner here because the more that lukashenko is weakened the more that putin controls belarus and uses it of course as a military frontline staging ground, because it's right up against Poland. So Putin seems to have geopolitical interests, and he privately probably thinks Lukashenko is, a, you know, a Stalinist thug and is mishandling things, but I'm sure he's perfectly happy with the situation. Do, do you see Putin as the winner here? Putin is a winner, but we have to wait and see how long this, uh, you know, close relationship between Lukashenko and Putin will last. Because usually, although they have to rely on each other very heavily, and Lukashenko more uh, on Putin than Putin on Lukashenko, uh, these two men don't seem to like each other very much. Lukashenko has never been happy that he has had to rely on Putin. Uh, he is a very uh, mercurial leader in a way because he tried to keep a distance from the Kremlin, which uh, wanted to, uh, you know, have a bigger control over uh, Belarus for many years. And in a way, he's done it successfully until the protest started last year, keeping that distance, playing with Putin, playing with the Kremlin. Uh, and, uh, you know, playing with the West at the same time. But what happened with Roman Protasevich shows that Lukashenko right now very clearly is on Putin's side and with Putin. As you said, there are some speculations that Russian security services may have uh, helped Belarus uh, to catch uh, the blogger, Roman Protasevich, uh, which uh, I think uh, is very likely. And we'll see 
uh, how long this friendship will last, the more quiet Belarus is, the more uh, Lukashenko may try to uh, distance from the Kremlin again. But right now, yes, he has to rely on Putin. But don't forget one thing. Putin has been watching was, uh, you know, the protests in Belarus with a lot of concern as well. He may not like Lukashenko very much, but he understands that if Lukashenko goes, uh, leaves the office and pro-Western uh, forces come to power, he will lose the control over Belarus as he did with Ukraine, as he did last year with Moldova. So for him, uh, that control over the former Soviet republics is going to shrink even further. And for him and his power, this is a strategic threat. He doesn't want that to happen. That's why he's going to continue uh, supporting Lukashenko. Right, and Putin just simply can't get his head around the idea that people don't like gangster government, that they want democracy and the rule of law. And what he's offering is gangster government. Uh, obviously, he has geostrategic interests as well in opposing NATO and its encroachment towards Russia. But I'm always surprised at the idea that these dictators have that somehow people will put up endlessly with corrupt gangster-type government. But that's what they offer. Yes, exactly. And unfortunately, uh, the information uh, is very scarce about the true nature of the Putin regime or of the Lukashenko regime. That's why we should continue supporting journalists, because independent journalists provide information to people in their respective countries about the true nature of the regimes, be it Russia or Belarus. So let's talk in the last few minutes here, Gulnaza, let's talk a little about the others that have been jailed who aren't getting the attention that Roman Protasevich is getting. You've got the chief editor of uh, Tut B, Mayana Zolotava. She's in jail on a spurious tax uh, evasion charges, facing up to 10 years, and a whole bunch of others. So take us through some of the other lesser-known people who have been jailed and some of them been released, but others are facing long sentences on trumped-up charges. Yes, what you mentioned is a very important case because Tutbai, the media outlet, is uh, one of the biggest, and by some criteria, it is the biggest. I saw some statistics that 62% of Belarusians read Tutbai on a daily basis, and Nechta that Roman Pratasevich co-founded was the second biggest source uh, of information in Belarus. So what happened a week ago uh, in Belarus is, I think, the beginning of a new cycle of a crackdown against independent media. Because exactly a week ago, uh, on Tuesday, uh, the offices of Tutbai were raided in several countries in Belarus. And uh, 10 people were detained, and some of them remain in detention, including, as you mentioned, its chief editor, Marina Zolotova. And today we are looking at the detention of three or even four more uh, staff members of Tutbai. Uh, again, uh, you know, the, the crackdown continues. And uh, the 
last Tuesday, there were already at least two members of the uh, team of Tutbay in jail. Katarina Borisevich was serving a six-month prison sentence for reporting in November on the death of a protester uh, during protests on anti, uh, you know, uh, on, on the anti-Lukashenko protests. She was released last Wednesday only to find that her chief editor is in jail, her colleagues are in jail, and her media outlet is blocked. Uh, another uh, Tutbay correspondent, Lyubov Kaspirovich, is still serving a 15-day administrative arrest. And now we will have to wait and see what happens to Marina Zolotova and others because the charges against them are very serious. Actually, we saw the criminalization of journalism uh, last year after we've seen many journalists, dozens if not hundreds of journalists being detained on and off. Some of, some of them went to detentions several times during uh, many months of uh, covering protests. And at some point, the authorities started bringing criminal charges against them. Katarina Borisevich was one of those cases. The other case is two uh, women, uh, Katarina Andreeva and Darya Chultsova, who were live streaming protests in November for Belsat. Belsat is, a, is one of the most popular uh, media outlets in Belarus. It's a broadcaster and its offices were raided during live broadcast last Friday. So we've been monitoring this situation and we can say uh, w with a certain degree of certainty that uh, the, 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 the Lukashenko government uh, stepped up its fight against independent reporting even in the last week. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Gulnaza, do you think that they will execute uh, Roman Protasevich? Uh, he's apparently facing the death penalty, which is, and, and Belarus is the only country in Europe that has a death penalty. I'm very concerned about his, about his fate. Yes, I don't know if death penalty is on the table, but uh, the problem with Belarus and inmates in Belarusian jails is that the conditions are so bad and uh, Protasevich's treatment uh, is going to be very bad, so he may not even survive a long jail sentence, even if he is not sentenced to death. So uh, the first and foremost we should think about is his uh, immediate and unconditional release. I understand that it, the world community is discussing sanctions, and, uh, you know, the flights over Belarus and, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, let's not get distracted from the plight of this 26-year-old uh, young man who did nothing except for sharing information a lot of Belarusians needed. Well, just in the last minute, though, Lukashenko has branded Roman Protasevich as a terrorist. Mm -hmm. So it uh, wouldn't be surprising if he gets the death penalty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, uh, Gulnosa Saeed. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. 
And again, I've been speaking with Gulnaza Saeed, who's a Committee to Protect Journalists Europe and Central Asia Program Coordinator, a journalist with over 15 years of experience in New York, Prague, Bratislava and Tashkent. She has covered issues including politics, media, religion and human rights with a focus on Central Asia, Russia and Turkey. And she has an article at CNN, The Shocking Detention of a Journalist in Flight. You are listening to Background Briefing here on WMNF Tampa. And as part of WMNF's mission calendar, we are paying special attention to mental health awareness in May. We know many listeners or loved ones are struggling. If you need help, you can reach out to the Crisis Center of Tampa. The number is 211. That is 211. And WMNF is here for you, too. And thanks for listening. And stay tuned for Midpoint Thursday with Janice Sherberger and Shelley Reback following NPR News here on your community conscious radio station, WMNF, Tampa. And that paper said the dead were 23. But there were 500 missing Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Scott Ellsworth, a professor in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan, formerly an historian with the Smithsonian Institute. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Secret Game and Death in a Promised Land, the first ever comprehensive history of the horrific Tulsa race riot in 1921. He also served as a lead scholar for the Tulsa Race Riot Commission and has been involved in the ongoing legal efforts to win compensation for riot survivors. And his latest book just out is The Groundbreaking, The Tulsa Race Massacre and an American City's Search for Justice. And he joins us on his way to Tulsa, where his team of researchers will exhume the mass grave which they recently discovered. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Scott Ellsworth. Thanks, Ian. It's it's great to be on the show. Well, thanks for joining us. And, um, you know, there's so much interest all of a sudden, I guess because it's the 100th anniversary. What is the actual date? Is it May the 31st? Yeah, so the uh, the, ma- the Tulsa Race Massacre took, took place on uh, over a 16-hour period on May 31st, June 1st. So uh, both days are, are part of the centennial. And President Biden will be in Tulsa next week on june the first yes he yes he will there's there's quite a bit of activities uh john legend is is going to be giving a a, a free concert um stacy abrams will be there there are you know lots of you know talks symposiums you know art exhibits uh marches uh, vigils you name it so the story though as horrific as what happened a hundred years ago the story in, in your new book is how long it's taken to bring about awareness and then some justice. And, of course, we haven't really had justice. We had just a week ago two survivors, or three actually, testified before Congress. The 107-year-old Viola Fletcher and the 160-year-old Leslie Randall. And the third, I don't remember his name, but is that as big a part of the story, the cover-up, the, the many, many decades, of, well, a hundred years, frankly, to get this story out? 
Oh, absolutely. And and that was a story. I mean, I, I wrote the book in part because I realized that I was one of the few people around who actually knew the story and that I, I needed to write it down. But, but you know, uh, in, in brief, you know, the, the Tulsa Race Massacre was actively covered up for uh, 50 years. Um, you know, official records disappeared. Um, researchers, as, as recently as the 1970s, had their lives threatened, had their livelihoods threatened for looking into it. Um, Tulsa's uh, white daily newspapers for a half century went to extreme lengths never to write about it. Uh, you know, so it, it was something that in, um, in the white neighborhoods in town was buried. You know, I'm 67 years old. I grew up in Tulsa, you know, and, and it was something you would only hear stories about as a kid. But the, the irony was that in the African-American community in Tulsa in Greenwood, the massacre was also not publicly discussed for nearly a half century. And I think the way to think about that is to think about Holocaust survivors and, and massacre survivors like Holocaust survivors, like World War II veterans and others, they didn't want to burden their children and grandchildren with these stories of these horrific traumatic events that they had gone through. And so it, it just really wasn't discussed on, on either side of the tracks in Tulsa. Well, of course, Oklahoma is a very red state. I don't think there's any Democrats in any position, either in the state and local governments, let alone in the federal government, from Oklahoma. But the mayor of Tulsa, who's a Republican, he seems to have stepped up. Of course, he got a lot of flack for doing it. So tell us about that, the work that you've done with him and the fact that your team found a mass grave in Oaklawn, which you're going to be exhuming uh, starting on June the 1st. Yeah, so, so and, and there's a bit of a history to this. I actually started the search for the mass graves 23 years ago when I was a scholar working for the state commission on, on the race, what we then called the race riot. Um, and we did a lot of work. We interviewed 300 people. We identified three sites where uh, we were confident and remained confident the massacre victims were buried in unmarked graves while their loved ones were all being held under armed guard in these internment centers. Um, but we got caught up in the politics of the era and were shut down. And I put away my materials and I figured, well, somebody someday will be interested in this, but I didn't know whether it'd be in my lifetime or not. But two years ago, the mayor reached out to me, also to the state archaeologist, and uh, wanted to start uh, up this investigation. And, and the mayor, whose name is G.T. Bynum, in fact, before he was mayor as a city council member, he had tried to get the then mayor to restart this investigation. Um, I mean, I, he's a, uh, you know, a devout Catholic. I think that he's somebody who was very bothered by what happened to these people. And, uh, and I can tell you, you know, the mayor and the city have really been terrific. Uh, they've supported us in every way that we've asked. They've thrown a lot of money at this. Uh, City employees have been terrific in, in, in helping us out. So in, in October, we did discover a mass grave in Oakland Cemetery, a, a city-owned cemetery that predated the massacre and was, of course, segregated in those days. We had known for a long time that at least 18 identified and unidentified massacre, African-American massacre victims were buried in the cemetery. We learned that through funeral home records, but we just didn't know where. And in October, we discovered 12 
coffins, plain pine coffins laid side by side in an area where we thought these people would be buried. So uh, on June 1st, uh, our team is going to begin exhuming those remains. Um, there's a, a team of forensic scientists, of osteologists, and others who will study the remains. They can determine, um, you know, gender and age and racial characteristics, hopefully cause of death as well. And then the plan is to extract DNA, and hopefully we will be able to um, actually identify some of these folks. But but the longer-term plan and is to rebury these people with honor. Again, they were, in my mind, you know, uh, thrown away, treated very, you know, caustically by the authorities. Um, they'll be reburied with honor and memorialized appropriately as well, too. And in my mind, I see something like the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or something along those lines. So, and, and these, you know, these are all murder victims. And they're going to represent not only the lives lost in the Tulsa Race Massacre, but I think that they will also be represented representative of, of, you know, people of color who have been murdered, you know, throughout the centuries in America, you know, victims of racist violence. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Scott Ellsworth, who's a professor in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan, formerly an historian with the Smithsonian Institution. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Secret Game and Death in a Promised Land, the first ever comprehensive history of the horrific Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. He also served as a lead scholar for the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, and he's been involved in the ongoing legal efforts to win compensation for riot survivors. And his latest book just out is The Groundbreaking, The Tulsa Race Massacre and an American City's Search for Justice. And he joins us on his way to Tulsa, where his team of researchers will exhume the mass grave which they recently discovered. And in terms of the, the massacre itself, it began with a lynching of a sort of trumped-up charge against a young man who supposedly raped a white woman which was completely unproven but nevertheless it was about the lynching was about to happen and a bunch of african-american veterans from world war one showed up to defend this young man who was about to be lynched and that seems to have sparked a backlash from the white community and they set about to burn loot and massacre hundreds of residents of the greenwood area which was referred to as the Black Wall Street. So we're talking about hundreds of casualties here, right? Mostly men. Did, did they shoot and murder a lot of women too, or were they were just people just caught in the burning buildings? Well, you know, I mean, we don't we don't know. I mean, I, I I'm you know, absolutely. I I have no. There's no doubt in my mind that there were women casualties as well too. Uh, we know that there was a you know a stillborn infant that was buried with massacre. Uh, victims as well too um but i i suspect that that most of uh the remains that we're going to be able to find will be those of men absolutely and you know i think it's it's you you know you it's so important about the scope of this event i mean you know not only were there the deaths but more than 1000 african american homes and businesses were systematically looted and set on fire um, you know, Greenwood had two newspapers. It had two theaters. One sat a thousand people. The second sat 750. 
There were 30 30 black restaurants. There were 30 African-American grocery stores and meat markets. There was a photography studio, a hospital, a public library branch, um, a, a post office branch. There were a dozen churches. All of these were destroyed by the white mob. And, um, and Greenwood, photographs of Greenwood, which used to be very hard to come by, um, you know, after the massacre, it, it, it looks like, you know, Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And even, you know, more horribly, not a single white person ever spent, you know, a week and a day in prison for any of the murders, the, the robbery or the, or the arson. And what happened to the survivors if you destroy a whole community? A prosperous community and kill all the, the male adults of presumably most of them died what happened to the survivors did were they impoverished that's a great question now, re, now remember it's you know, the community was pretty big there were 10,000 people living in Greenwood in 1921 so you you have a lot of folks that overwhelming majority stayed um, but they were they were first faced with the problem of trying to rebuild their homes and uh, which and, and many of them spent the, the winter of 1921, 1922 living in tents that had been provided by the American Red Cross and, and others. But but the incredible story about Greenwood is that and, and Tulsa was this oil boom town. There was lots and lots of money in Tulsa. And astonishingly, the African-American adult survivors, including lots of women, you know, within a week or two after the massacre, and the majority of them worked in jobs in the white community as, you know, servants, maids, dishwashers, you know, ditch diggers. Those people went back to work. And can you imagine doing that, going back to work in the neighborhoods that are filled with people who had been recently trying to kill you and, and who killed some of your loved ones? And astonishingly, Greenwood rebuilt itself. And um, some of the buildings went up quite quickly. By 1922, you had some new versions of these three-story brick buildings in the uh, commercial district. But others, it took a long time. It took forever for the churches to rebuild because they had to pay off their mortgage on their first building and then slowly raise money to erect a second. So there's, there's a kind of a dichotomy here. I mean, Greenwood did rebuild itself by the 1940s. The old-timers told me that it was even bigger than before. That being said, it also created this economic trench that black Tulsans have never been able to get out of. If you look at, you know, social indicators today, I think African-Americans have uh, 11 years shorter lifespan than white Tulsans do, Um, you know, in terms of poverty, illiteracy, infant mortality, all of that. The the community is still hurting. and, And part of that hurt can be traced directly to the massacre. And in the terms of trying to erase the record, uh, which was done in a sustained way, you mentioned the, the white newspapers, they stripped out all mentions of it, they destroyed photographs, etc. My understanding is that one of the main impetuses of looking into this in terms of documentaries, apart from your book, of course, Scott. You have been listening to Background Briefing on WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for Midpoint Thursday with Janet Sherberger and Shelley Reebok following NPR News here on your community conscious radio station, WMNF Tampa.